A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from The Spectator and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmonton, and on the podcast this week, Oliver Boschiano warns that we should brace ourselves for a coup in Brazil. Then, is three, or possibly even more, a crowd? Mary Wakefield discusses polyamory in her column for the magazine, before Fiona Mountford tells us about the sad demise of church pews. Up first, Oliver Boschiano. Jail, death or victory. These are the three alternatives Brazil's incumbent leader says await him. It is an unusual rallying call for an election campaign, but this is Jair Bolsonaro, the Trump of the tropics, and he may well be right. Bolsonaro was elected in 2018 when his initial rival, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, the country's former president, was jailed midway through the campaign on corruption charges. Bolsonaro, a relative unknown, beat the replacement Workers' Party candidate by a 10 percentage point margin. His formula was to focus on anti-corruption and conduct his campaign predominantly via social media. The use of YouTube, Facebook and most importantly the gargantuan WhatsApp groups that are part of daily life here enabled Bolsonaro to project different images to discrete sectors of society. Evangelical churchgoers got the faithful family man. Jim Bros and the Satanage of country for music fans were introduced to the gun-loving former military captain. The business world was presented with an anti-communist crusader. Now, however, with spiralling inflation and a disastrous handling of the pandemic, some 685,000 Brazilians died. The president is finding it hard for his anti-politics message to cut through to all but hardened Bolsonaristas. 33 million people face daily hunger, a Senate inquiry into his failure to buy vaccines, in a country with almost no anti-vax movement, recommended criminal charges against him. Moreover, his old rival, Lula, is back in the running, having been released from prison in 2019, corruption charges quashed. All polls are predicting the leftists, with his right-of-centre running partner, will win in the second round runoff. Drama enough? Not for Brazil. Bolsonaro has long been casting doubt over the integrity of the country's electronic voting system, suggesting he will not recognise a vote that goes against him. Brazil, the fourth largest democracy in the world, has had completely paperless elections since the new millennium, with almost no recorded cases of fraud. At one of a series of rallies across the country's major cities last year, Bolsonaro said of the forthcoming fight... I can't participate in a farce like the one being sponsored by the Superior Electoral Tribunal. Calling a meeting of foreign diplomats in July, he repeated his claims concerning the electronic ballot system. We have time to solve the problem with the participation of the armed forces. He has repeatedly said, only God will oust me. Earlier this month, the election authorities acquiesced to a request from the military for further tests on the integrity of the wireless vote-counting machines. Bolsonaro's defence minister, a recently retired general, promised the army will go to until the end 
to ensure the right result come the first voting round on 2nd of October. People spoke of a coup in America after the cosplay at the Capitol in Washington DC in January 2021. The threat of a military coup in Brazil is real though. This country has spent more of its 200 years of independence as a dictatorship than not, and its constitution retains many elements of the former military regime. The left is taking the prospect extremely seriously. Much of Lula's energy seems to have been spent behind the scenes, shoring up support for democracy. Bolsonaro, meanwhile, is said to have been sounding out an appetite for autocracy. The public-facing campaigns have a strange feel to them, because both candidates are playing to their core bases. Rallies and visits to Samba schools for Lula, rallies and motorcycle parades for Bolsonaro. 80% of the electorate have told pollsters they've already made up their minds as to which candidate they're backing and won't be swayed. Lula and Bolsonaro aren't the only presidential contenders, but they are the only ones with any serious chance. Bolsonaro is pouring government resources into getting himself to the second round runoff. Bribes range from election period poverty relief pavements to reducing to zero import tax on the whey protein beloved of bodybuilders and securing places for his political allies in Congress. But serious election watchers, like the academic Rodrigo Perez Oliveira, believe that the really dirty fighting, perhaps a coup, will come after the second round. Bolsonaro knows perfectly well that he will not win fairly. He does believe in polls, says Perez Oliveira. Therefore, all his movements must be read in terms of a coup agenda. In the weeks before the vote, he predicts, Bolsonaro will ramp up the agitating against the legitimacy of the election apparatus and encourage supporters to take to the streets. Violence, even without such top-down provocation, is inevitable. In fact, has already begun. In recent months, two Lula supporters have been killed by Bolsonaro acolytes. The violence serves in part to intimidate opposition voters, and the tactic is already working to an extent. In Brazil, staffing of polling stations is partly fulfilled through a jury duty style summons and people are terrified of getting the call. Mainly, however, the aim is a state of chaos, a climate of fear that will provide Bolsonaro with an excuse for emergency legislation postponing voting. This will not be the sort of coup that Gabriel Garcia Marquez's novel describes, with tanks rolling down Brasilia's avenues. As Perez Oliveira says, with the exception of a few clashes in the streets, the dispute will take place almost entirely within the staggering institutionality. One mall-owning entrepreneur spoke for many when he wrote in a leaked WhatsApp group, I prefer a coup than the return of Lula, a million times, and certainly no one will stop doing business with Brazil, as they do with various dictatorships around the world. Then, there's the equally worrying risk of a judicial counter-coup. Supreme Court Justice Alejandra de Moraes has recently been appointed to the head of the country's electoral court, finding himself in a very powerful position. Sao Paulo-based political analyst Alex Hoshuli says, We're faced with an unenviable situation. Confrontation between naked coup-mongering on the one hand, and on the other, a defence of institutionality by forces who would gladly usher in a judicial dictatorship. The coup has already happened. In 2020, Jamares led an investigation against alleged incidents of fake news being spread by Bolsonaro-friendly bloggers. 
and after the messages of the coup ambivalent businessmen were revealed last year, de Marais ordered raids of their offices by federal police. It is his electoral commission that will either acquiesce to Bolsonaro's demands of a parallel count by the military, who were given a supervisory role last year, or allow Lula's likely victory under the current process. In recent weeks, they've been hammering that out behind closed door with uniformed generals, the meetings going unminuted. Whoever takes the green and yellow presidential sash come Inauguration Day will owe Joe Moraes and the judicial apparatus a dangerous debt that is unlikely to be forgotten. That was Oliver Boschiano. Next, Mary Wakefield. The saddest thing I saw this week was a dating advert written by a woman, let's call her Jane, looking for a man to start a family with. There was nothing sad about Jane per se. She's attractive and accomplished in the usual alarming millennial way. Not only does she have a well-paid job in a tech firm, but she climbs, plays the cello, writes plays, and is a near-professional baker. Because young people these days don't drink until they pass out, they have time for hobbies. Jane is also polyamorous, she mentioned in the advert, just in passing. She is in a committed relationship with three other people, and they live in a shared house. And this, I've discovered, is par for the course now in parts of London and across the USA. Some 5% of Americans say they're polyamorous, and given that almost everyone over 50 is monogamous, this means an awful lot of poly youth. We leering Gen Xers might think sex when we hear polyamory, but for Jane and friends, it doesn't seem to be about orgies so much as politics. It's a rejection of convention and the false binary of marriage. One's needs are better met by more than one person, they say, although I'm not sure it's ever occurred to me that my marriage should meet my needs at all. Anyway, polyamory is all very serious and self-aware. Ethical non-monogamy, you might hear it called by a grandchild. In which case, you can surprise them by knowing that a collection of men and women in a polyamorous relationship is called a polycule. So here's Jane, nestled in her polycule, enjoying an earnest and ethical life. Here's Jane in a committed relationship with three people but still at a total loss for someone to have a child with. And this is what I find sad, that there are growing numbers of polyamorous women out there, desperately seeking what they refer to as nesting relationships. Women who thought they were liberated, but who have nonetheless been blindsided by biology. They want a child, and what sounds suspiciously like a husband, but they're sunk now, aren't they? I admire them for their optimism, but how many men are going to jump at the chance to parent in a polycule? Yes, love, don't worry. I'll hold the baby while you give Hugo his Thursday sex massage. The trouble is that they've defined love not as self-sacrifice, but as self-fulfilment, and it's a rare man who considers it more personally fulfilling to burp a whinging baby than to, say, go out scouting for a younger polyamorist. And even if a nesting partner did somehow plop into your polycule, you don't want to be a polyamorous mother, Jane. Trust me on this. There's enormous potential for jealousy in polyamory. Everyone agrees. So each poly partner needs a lot of reassurance. Polytherapists recommend twice-weekly sessions with The Jealousy Workbook, Exercises and Insights for Managing Open Relationships by Kathy Labriola. 
This book will guide you through the labyrinth of jealousy and bring you safely out to your widest possible selection of lifestyle choices, promises Dossie Easton, author of The Ethical Slut. Imagine being a new mother, washing nappies, trying to answer emails, struggling with breastfeeding. You hear a light knock, and there's Rachel, looking hurt, with her annotated copy of The Jealousy Workbook. Later, just as your baby finally latches on, it's Hugo at the door. Uh, Jane, it's Thursday. Your needs are far, far better met by a nice bottle of red and a paid nanny who under no circumstances requires sex. It's oddly frowned on these days to think about things from the perspective of children. Perhaps it interferes with all the self-fulfilment. Happy parents make a happy child, is as close as anyone gets, and that's blatantly untrue. As long as a kid's parents aren't screaming or hitting each other, I'm not sure it much notices if they're actively happy. A child has different needs, unconditional love and a set of parents to bond with, and this is where polyamory becomes very far from rational or ethical. It's not just the dubious idea of letting a child grow up with a revolving set of polyamorous lovers. It's that it's often unclear who the child's parents actually are. The internet is full of three-person families, thropples, they're called, who have children because, why not? It meets my needs right now. The thropples all claim that no one parent is more significant than another. Ian, Alan and Jeremy, for instance, the authors of Three Dads and a Baby, fought a legal battle for all three of them to be named on the birth certificates of their two children in a landmark case in the US. Their regulars on Breakfast TV, Ian, Alan and Jeremy, both here and in America. They joke about many hands making light work and how fabulous it is to have three people to share the washing up. What they don't much discuss is what happens when thropples unthropple, which they invariably do. A child who once had three parents in one home may soon have three homes and any number of parents, quite possibly nine, if the thropples thropple up again. But happy parents make a happy child, remember? Tammy Nelson, author of Open Monogamy, says that polyamorous parenting is a return to the good old days when new parents were surrounded by relatives who all helped raise a child. It takes a village, she reminds us. But there are villages and villages. For grandparents, uncles, aunts, the children are the focus, not their own relationships with each other. And they're stable. Stability is what a child needs more than anything. And stability is the one thing it's near impossible for a polyamorous polycule to provide. That was Mary Wakefield. Finally, Fiona Mountford. Imagine a child's drawing of the interior of a traditional English church and the elements the picture is likely to contain. There will be colourful stained glass windows, an altar and, almost certainly, row after row of sturdy wooden pews. Yet the sad truth is that in parish after parish, the pews, which are often centuries old, are being removed and replaced by grimly functional chairs of the sort to be found in any meeting hall or conference centre. I recently went to my own mid-Victorian parish church after a couple of months away and was dismayed to find the familiar old pews all gone and in their stead identical rows of seats with pink cushions. Why do the Church of England seating arrangements matter? 
isn't the getting of bums onto ecclesiastical seats the only thing that counts in our aggressively secular era of declining congregations? My answer would be a frustratingly ambivalent yes but no, as the two issues are linked. Pews, like it or not, are at the heart of what a church represents to many people, regular congregants or otherwise, and without them something substantially different is on offer. The arguments for depewing are understandable. Without these heavy, fixed pieces of furniture, which are only in use a handful of times a week, church buildings can become multi-purpose spaces, open all hours and available to a range of people and activities. These areas can be decorated and uplit to become a community hub, which in my experience tends to mean a cross between a nursery and a Starbucks. Children can run about and coffee can be sold. God, if he manages to get a look in at all, will be present in the form of some irksome, tinny religious muzak. This admittedly gets people into churches, although whether it encourages them to attend an actual service is another matter. It is also important to note that old pews cannot be removed without due formal rigour. An application for a faculty, supported by the parochial church council, is submitted to the diocese, and appropriate bodies, such as the Victorian Society, may also be consulted. But here's the rub. A service without pews has a different timbre. Whether intentional or not, a service becomes less formal. Have you ever seen people kneel to pray in a church full of Ikea-type seats? The glory of pews is the feeling they afford of being alone in company. You can contemplate the complexities of life and faith in your own little bubble of solitude before turning to your neighbour further along the row with a friendly smile. At my church... Everyone used to gravitate each week to their customary spot in their preferred pew, enjoying precious personal space as well as the companionship of those around them. Newcomers were welcomed and settled easily and happily into this pattern. Mobile phones and other distractions remained out of sight. Peace and stillness, such rare commodities in modern life, reigned supreme. With chairs, there is nothing of this gloriously complex dynamic at play. Instead, all is bland, all is easy, all is smoothed over. Contemplation is replaced by chit-chat, and occasional visitors, hankering after church the way they remember it, are startled. It's sad to say, but the content of the services is too often tinged by this wash of blandness. Stark religious difficulties are eschewed in favour of platitudes. If the church is going to survive, so the thinking seems to run, it is going to need to attract a newer generation, raised on the sometimes trite tenets of self-help and self-expression. Mulling at length upon the tough stuff and getting sore knees in the process, while harking back to a golden age of vicars and parishioners as portrayed in the novels of Barbara Pym, is not going to achieve this goal. Yet if the Church of England is famous for one thing, it is awkward compromise. Look at the never-ending contortions over same-sex partnerships. The solution here seems simple enough. Leave the first few rows of pews nearest the altar untouched and swap the rest for chairs. That way, caffeine can be consumed and community events hosted. 
in a space that nonetheless offers a quiet but firm reminder of its original purpose. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and do join us again next week.